Ravi Sani is an industrial designer. He's also the founder and CEO of RKS Design, a strategic design consultancy delivering people-focused solutions with global impact, widely recognized for its multidisciplinary work in research, strategy, and design. RKS leverages insight to create strategies, build brands, and achieve bottom-line success for its global clientele and empower consumers with compelling designs and experiences. But what does that mean? It sounds like a lot of marketing speak, but what Robbie will tell you on this episode of Creative Mind is how he and his team create human-focused design solutions for clients that include Life Technologies, Line 6, Unilever, Hamilton Medical, JBL, Zillis USA, and even Fender. These brands make everything from can openers to guitars, things that you can touch, use, and of course manipulate. In short, what industrial designers are tasked with creating every day. Here's Robbie's story. I grew up in Southern California, a city Cal State Northridge, an art center. I got hired at Xerox there. And when I started my business, you know, I was doing well at Xerox. And, uh, you know, honestly, I didn't like corporate life. I just blindly bailed out. So I gave up the place I lived. I moved back in with my parents. And I kind of said, okay, now what? You know, because I really didn't like corporate life. So, you know, I kind of started making phone calls and seeing, you know, who might need design help. I went to a seminar put on by the IDSA, and they had a guy there just came in talking about sales and marketing. And he said, take a piece of paper and write the numbers from 100 down to 1 backwards. And he said, start making cold calls. It's like, what's a cold call? Like, just find somebody that might use you and call them and try to get through to them. And he said, and I'll guarantee you by the time you get down to the bottom list, you'll have a running company. I got, I got down to 93. I got seven calls, and I had more work than I could ever ever deal with. And my philosophy was do right by your client and your client will be bonded to you. And my other philosophy was work strategically. And if you work strategically and, and try to help your client beat out the competition, that you'll do right by them. But that also meant that if you did a can opener for company A, you shouldn't go to company B and say, hey, I just did the can opener for company A. Don't you want me to do your can opener? And that's what led to kind of a slow growth, but a diversity of portfolio that we work in like just unbelievable amounts of industries. I mean, there's stuff on that's not even our, our website might show, honestly, it might show like 1% of the work we've done. They're just like the team just is limiting the work to more recent work. But the diversity of work that came out of that and the discipline came out of kind of those philosophies. Starting off an industrial design project is unique in that you have to look at the person who is going to use the thing that you make far more deeply than anything else. Here, Ravi gives us his four steps to design. I always point out that as an industrial designer, it's pretty difficult, but you have to do four things for your project. One is you have to do something that's positive for a company. Two is you have to do something that's relevant to the market. You have to build brand equity, and you have to connect emotionally with people. Those four things are huge challenges, but that's what we do every day. 
So if you remember, you know, these four things, positive for the company, relevant to the market, build brand equity, and connect emotionally with people, right? Every project, these are the litmus tests. Well, let's talk about who are we as designers? Why do we get to use both sides of our brain? You know, we're creative, we're talent, but we also understand business. So that makes everyone in this room very unique to the value proposition to an entrepreneur, to a running company, to anyone. It's very rare to find somebody who, who can do that, who can be creative and understand business. But that's what industrial design truly is about. We do a lot of research. So we have thousands and thousands of expeditions. That's how we fuel uh, the foundation of our work. And it's interesting because it's taken us all over the world. We've been escorted with machine guns into, into villages in Africa. You know, we've been in little carts going to villages in India. We've been, you know, pretty much everywhere into South America. And then more advanced working with doctors in Japan and Korea and in Europe. RKS, the studio Robbie founded, defined their process of design as psychoesthetic. And as you can imagine, it gets pretty deep into the mind and the thinking of the user. Here, Ravi takes us through their process. So the psychosynthetic process is based on a foundation. So I've been running RKS is now, now it's 40 years old. So I've been doing this a while. And before I was at, started RKS, I was at Xerox. And when I was at Xerox, I worked with a team of, of PhD psychologists. And what I learned from them was that you have to understand people in order to motivate someone to do something new for themselves. So in 1982, which is long before most of you were born, I'm sure by, by decades, I wrote this underpinning, being people-centric, right? And so we are people-centric. If you learn one thing from me, this will probably be the thing that sticks with you, is it's not how you or anyone feels about the design or the experience. It's how it makes them feel about themselves. That's the most critical part, is that you're doing something for someone else and how does it make them feel about themselves? How do you feel about yourself coming here today? When you leave, will you feel like you did something for yourself? Right? It all turns completely around. So we're a facilitator. But we also have a process that's pretty involved, right? So this is just an overview. But what you see is that we do a ton of research. And from research, we start synthesizing. And from the synthesis, and in the PA book, you'll see what the drill downs are, are on these. We identify what are the key attractors. How are we going to engage anyone? What are they attracted to? What do we focus on? How do we hook someone's eye, attention, engagement? Right? We layer that in with the hero's journey. How many are familiar with Joseph Campbell's work, the hero's journey? A few hands. I'll talk a little bit about it. Very, very important to design. When we have the hero's journey, then we actually, with all that work, then we start designing. You build a room out, you've got all this together, and you're feeding your brain, you're collaborating, and then you start designing. And it's amazing what happens when you do this. And when you go through this process, what's also amazing is that the challenge for me, being in the field for now 43 years, maybe 43 years, 44 years, is that how do I stay relevant? How do I stay fresh? How do I stay current? How do I adjust with the changing cultures? 
You've got to have these kind of tools so that as you go through the decades, you can completely renew yourself time and time again with each project every day. All this put together, you start designing, then you look at executing, and then you look at moments of truth. Moments of truth is part of the Campbell's uh, work on the hero's journey. One thing that you, I always remind people of is that being people-focused, that you got to understand about personas, which again is in the book, but understanding what goes into a persona and what comes out of a persona and why they're so important to the work we do. Putting up posters of fictitious people that represent the market, right? You know, I saw today that there, the, some of the, the students are designing for, they're in their thesis project, they're designing for their father, right? I would expect that you would put up a big picture and like, what car, what car does he drive? And what things does he like? And, you know, what, what does he complain about? And what, what really makes him tick? And the more you look at that picture and that persona and understand that persona and address them while you're drawing, thinking, sketching, it's amazing what effect it'll have. Your goal is that that persona, if they could design like you, what would they do for themselves? But they're not a designer, right? So by using personas, you start to really start to think in terms of the other person. You hear about it from writers, from filmmakers, and now, of course, designers. It's the hero's journey, an idea that can be as simple as, say, the story of Luke and the now completed Star Wars saga. But it is more about that moment of truth that Robbie wants designers to focus on. So I mentioned Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. The hero's journey is a work of, of Joseph Campbell as a scholar, as a lecturer, as an author. And what he found in traveling the world is that in all cultures throughout time, the story of the heroes emerged. Great religion is all based on the hero's journey. Star Wars is based on the hero's journey. Most people who write and screenwriters, everyone lives by the hero's journey. The hero's journey is simplified in the design process that we said that it's our job as designers to take every person through a hero's journey. I'm even hoping right now I can take you through a hero's journey. What attracted you to come here? How are we engaging you? So use design to attract someone, but then you use it to engage them. And when you engage them and they receive positive affirmations, positive affirmation is the door handle look like a push and it was a push, right? That's a positive affirmation on a very low level, right? If it's a push and you pull, you get frustrated, right? And you walk away or you get mad at the door. So we use it to engage those specific touch points and key attractors. That leads to an adoption. You may adopt an idea from me through this journey. You may lead a consumer to adopt uh, a new design of something. You may lead uh, someone to adopt falling in love with a new car. All of these things occur like deep inside of us and, and they're understandable. When someone adopts something, there's always a moment of truth. The moment of truth is that you've kind of made a promise to yourself and is it being kept? The door handle, you kind of like anticipated it was a push. Did it, did it push? You don't even think about it, it's just a moment of truth. Bigger moment of truths become much more significant in our lives, right? Moment of truth can be interaction with other people. It can be everything. When you get a positive moment of truth, 
We say that creates a heroic evangelist, which means that you can watch people's body language change. You can watch them tell stories about things, right? You can watch them put, put something on Amazon. We work with a company called Xylus. Xylus makes salad spinners and garlic presses, and you go in the Italian restaurant and you see the little cheese grater. That was all designed by us. So we designed a can opener for them. $14 can opener, right? Very basic product. We just studied and studied and watched people. It's like, you know, we're not going to just start stylizing the can opener. And we started like really like, like breaking down the interaction. And we found that you puncture the can and then you hold the handles together and you get distracted and you release up and now all of a sudden there's a web, right? And the can doesn't open. And you got to go back and do it again. So all we did was we put a latch. When you puncture the can, the two handles lock together. And it's just a nice, friendly, ergonomic can opener. I met with that client on Friday morning, and he's, and he's keeping count because we have this stating joke between us. 8,600 reviews on Amazon on a $14 can opener. How happy do you have to be with your can opener to go to Amazon to write about your experience with a can opener? But that's the hero's journey, right? If you can do it for something as mundane as a can opener, you can do it everywhere. But we got to understand, what are you doing for people, right? You know, and I'm still amazed, you know, that, and they just keep ticking up. The numbers just keep growing. And so we don't know where it's going to end. So how does a designer get there? get to the point where the problem can be solved. The hero's journey that Ravi mentioned before is a great step, but the team also looks at yet sometimes just puts aside another way of looking at things with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, these bigger, broader design concepts and theories. Here Ravi explains the two sides to the coin with projects they worked on at the high end and what some may consider the lower end of design. So how do we get there? I'm going to show you a few key elements. The PA map, we started with understanding Campbell and we started understanding Maslow's hierarchy. So everybody here knows about Maslow's hierarchy and the hierarchy of needs, which isn't necessarily relevant to what we do. So what we found is that there are holes in Maslow's hierarchy and that people will forego shelter to have a great cup of coffee or to have a great cell phone. You can't tell somebody's hungry, but you can tell if they're relevant if they're based on their phone and their clothes. So we started looking at how could we map something so that we understand how people see the universe and how we see it. And what we found is that we could map interactivity and gay self-actualization. And that created four zones, a basic quadrant, a versatile quadrant, artistic quadrant, and an enriched quadrant. And then what we said is that for your understanding, let's say the Mona Lisa is low interactivity and high self-actualization. And a sports car might be high interactivity and high self-actualization. And a paperclip would be low interactivity and low self-actualization. But a skip lower would be high interactivity and low self-actualization. And we put those on the four corners and we use that kind of as a guiding narrative. In every scenario that we've done, and we've been using this mapping system now for 20 years, the exact same mapping system, we can always figure out where everything goes, but we do it as a team. I don't say it's 100% accurate because it's a map, but I tell you, working with a map is so much better than not working with a map. It's like they say, 
you know, if you don't know where you're going, any, any road will get you there. You got to have a compass. You got to know where you're going and you got to think about it. And so what we do is we use that map and we use those examples. Now, things fall into different quadrants for different reasons. If we look at phones in the United States and we say, okay, you know, here's a basic full function phone and not many people take that. And upper right is the latest Samsung, LG, Apple phone. That why is it that people are motivated to go all the way upper right? In fact, what we find now is that people have gone all the way upper right and are looking for less interactivity, simplification of their technology, simplification of their life, voice actuation, things like that, and they're actually moving to the upper left. High self-actualization with the least amount of work because we're overloaded. But for the example of how it works and the importance of it is that this is in the United States or North America or Europe, one of the, one of the advanced countries. We also went to Africa to build bicycles uh, for World Bicycle Relief. And what we found is that in Africa, this person, we went to their house, he delivers coal and hay on his bicycle. We went to his house. It's a one-room house. It's got like two-foot mud walls, straw roof, corrugated metal door, you know, a bicycle chain with a lock to lock it. There's no electricity. There's no running water. There's no natural gas. There's no facilities. There's no utilities. And this person loves their house as much as anybody here loves their house and enjoys their life as much as they do. But that basic phone for them changes their life. Now they've got a radio, they might watch a movie, they've got their bank account, they're constantly in touch with their friends, they know what the weather is, they know where they have to be for work. Everything changes. So if we design the $1,500 greatest 5G, most beautiful phone that has a projector and everything, all that means is they can't afford it, right? And they have no value for it. So it's understanding that everyone here is gonna be designing for the world market. Right? I had the advantage when I got out of school, all I had to do, I thought, was design for the United States. Then I got hired into Xerox, and all of a sudden Xerox say, okay, Xerox is in Japan, and Xerox is in Russia, and Xerox is in Europe, and Xerox is in, in India, and it's Africa, and it's everywhere. And you start to think about, wait a minute, I'm never going to be designing for myself. I may never do a product, again, that is something that I personally use. How am I going to understand who I'm designing for? And that's the, one of the, the keys to psychosthetics and why you have to have a methodology that allows you to do that. So we go into, we were in villages in China, right, interviewing 13 and 12 year old girls about why do they like Coke over Pepsi and how do they buy it and what's their experience and what's their journey and do they buy one on the way home and what's their house look like? Right? You can't take a whole design team into somebody's house. You have to go out there, you have to take it, you have to put it together. To really scramble your brain, Ravi gives us another simple example of RKS's project list, redesigning a DNA sequencer. So this is a real life example. This is DNA sequencers for life technologies. So this is a very traditional kind of industrial design project. Client comes to us, 
They're a $5 billion company. They grew through acquisition. They've got 30 companies. They look like they're a distribution house because all of them look different, all of them feel different, all of them interact differently. So they bring us a product which was designed by a design group, you know, a very famous design group. It's a $500,000 piece of equipment that does DNA sequencing. What we did in, in being challenged to develop a global design language is we went out and started interviewing people. And this is another really interesting part of what happened with the mapping is as we started interviewing people, we found that we could not just map products and brands, we could actually map people and figure out where people are at, right? And, and it surprised us. We thought they'd all be lower right, but they're much more aspirational. And they weren't thinking about DNA sequencing as a machine that sits on a bench somewhere. They were thinking about DNA sequencing as the technology in the future of medical science that's going to help everyone on the planet to live a longer and healthier life. So you map them and you put them in a place that where they are today, and then by interviewing them and really digging, you start to see where are they going. Because we can't do something for them today. We have to do something for them that's going to come out years from now. Where are they going? And that creates an opportunity zone. And the opportunity zone is kind of this target that we establish as a criteria. And we say that is the visual mark that everything needs to relate to that. We looked at the brands. Here's the brands in the same map. And then you start to see their number one competitor, Illumina. Illumina is right in the opportunity zone. You look at their aggregate. What does their brand mark look like? What's their badging on their products look like? What's their website look like? What's all their marketing collateral look like? They're right in the zone. And our client is in the lower right. You know, highly complex, not very self-actualizing. AB, Applied Biosystem, part of Life Technologies. Boy, it's a mouthful. It's not like a quick, I get it. So how do we get that client into that opportunity zone. You take that, which is on every product, and you turn it into a simple industrial design of a badge. Two clear pieces of plastic with life sandwiched in between, technologies on the back, whites on the back of that, and the word life floats in space. You can see it floating, right? Because we vacuumed out all the air. So it made a very, very quick read. Then we look at the competitive landscape. So what you see is Illumina is the number one competitor. It's in the artistic zone. You see these other products. This is half a million dollars worth of technology, but Illumina is beautiful. It's award-winning. It doesn't look like it's the most high-speed, state-of-the-art, versatile, reliable technology that's available for half a million dollars. And our technology from our client, uh, which has to land in the opportunity zone, actually looks like it's antiquated and it's repurposed from the 1980s to do DNA sequencing. I don't know why it says that to everyone, but it just looks like old technology. So take that exact same product and transform it into that. That is exactly the same product. So you put it all together and now it starts to make great sense. Here's the before of that product and here's the after of that product. And it's important that I show this as a before and after because it just shows that without changing any of the other variables, what can actually happen through the process. Now it looks relevant. Now it looks state-of-the-art. Now it looks like more than half a million dollars worth of technology. 
and people have pride in the field it's the future of medical science. So we applied this to a global design language. The first product we designed came out a few years ago. It was the first DNA sequencer that could do a sequence in two hours for $1,000. Basically, the same design language applied to different form factors. Part of a 150-page global design book had multiple examples. And the net out is that Life Technologies, for a number of reasons, but one being the rebranding and kind of this pulling together of, of everything we did and, and the launch of that product, which launched the same week that Illumina launched. Illumina came out with a product that said the same thing, two hours, $1,000. And Life Technologies stole all the thunder. The White House was talking about it. All the media was talking about it. And when we started, the company was worth $5 billion. Four months later, they're acquired for $15.6 billion. Design played a part of that. There's other examples where, you know, it's just flat out the design made all the difference. So where do you apply it? You apply it everywhere. It's kind of like this magic seasoning that you can throw on everything. You can use it for UI, UX, for opportunity. You can use it for interior design. We use it everywhere. We haven't found a limitation. And every time we do it, we find like our brain gets a little smarter. We get a little bit more calibrated. We get, we're able to recall things that we couldn't otherwise recall. As designers, one of the things you should realize is your ability to put an image up on the wall allows you to recall things that you could never just sit there and, and, and tell someone. But the minute you put that visual up, watch your recall go on to a different level. You'll talk about the research and the experiences and why you got there and everything else. But if you don't have a visual and just have to get up and talk, and you're talking to the CEO of a $5 billion company, and they start drilling with these hard questions, it's amazing how you get tongue-tied you can't do it. But with the visuals and all of this, you can really go anywhere. Now, Ravi, of course, makes this sound very simple, doesn't he? But he provides a lot of great information and downloadable information on his website. And these are also highlights from a longer talk that Ravi gave here at the Academy of Art, which you can find on our YouTube page. And of course, all of these links are available by going to academyart.edu slash creative mind and checking out the blog listing for this episode. I'm Bobby Brill, and thank you for listening to this episode of Creative Mind. And please be sure to hit subscribe on whatever device you're listening to so you never miss an upcoming episode. Thanks for listening.